0: This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 218, collection of lectures entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 14, given in Stuttgart on the 4th of December, 1922. I am very pleased to be able to speak to you again today as I pass through on my travels and I would like to use this opportunity to expand a little on the subject of my last two lectures here. Previously I spoke about the human being's relationship to the world of spirit, insofar as this can be perceived by shedding light on processes that occur during sleep, which are unconscious for ordinary awareness, and also by spiritual scientific investigation of experiences we pass through in the world of spirit, between death and a new birth. Today I want to describe how the life we lead here between birth and death is a kind of transformed image of what we live through in spiritual worlds between death and a new birth. We only understand human life on earth if we can relate the diverse ways in which this life comes to expression to what corresponds to them in worlds of spirit, where we can say the major part of our existence is spent. Firstly, I would like to speak primarily of how the psyche expresses itself, how the soul manifests on earth, and how this can be related to experiences in the world of spirit. You will have seen from what I presented in my last two last lectures here, that the experiences of the human soul in the spiritual world between death and a new birth are essentially different from those we have here during life on earth. Here all our experiences are mediated by the body, whether the physical or etheric body. Nothing we experience on earth can be experienced without the support of corporeality. We might very easily believe that thinking is a purely spiritual activity, and that the way in which it occurs on earth is the human so- is that the human soul has nothing to do. Let me read that again. We might very easily believe that thinking is a purely spiritual activity, and that the way in which it occurs on earth in the human soul has nothing to do with bodily existence. From one point of view, that is true. But however spiritually autonomous human thinking may be, this thinking could not happen here, in our earthly existence, if we could not rely on our body and its processes. Let me use a metaphor that I have often used in relation to these things. When we walk over the ground, it is true, of course, that the ground does not itself constitute the human being who bears his essential attributes enclosed within his skin, But without the support of the ground, we could not exist here physically. The same is true of thinking as a process living in the soul. By its intrinsic nature, it is not certainly some kind of brain process, and yet it could not happen if it did not have the brain to sustain and support it here in physical life. Only by seeing things in these terms do we form a correct idea of the spiritual nature, but equally of the corporeal dependency of human thinking. There is nothing in us here in earthly existence that does not have to rely on corporeal existence in which we possess physical organs, lungs, heart, brain, and so on. In a condition of ordinary health, our awareness is not filled with perception of our inner organs. Only when we suffer from some disorder of an organ do we start to perceive it doing so also in a very imperfect way. We can never say that direct perception of an organ gives us full knowledge of it, unless we study anatomy, and then we only have the dead and not the living organ before us. We can never say that we have as clear a perception of an inner organ as we do of an external object before us. It is characteristic of earthly existence, that our own inner corporeality is not directly available to our awareness. Least of all do we know anything about what is usually regarded as the most valuable part of our body, the interior of the head. When people do start to become familiar with it, this is usually a very unpleasant familiarity caused by headaches and all associated disorders. In spiritual existence between death and a new birth, the very opposite holds true. Here we do really know our interior. Imagine that here on earth we did not see the trees and the clouds outside us, but within, as if we were looking inward always and seeing lungs, heart or stomach. In the world of spirit we look into our interior, but what we see there is the world of spiritual hierarchies, the world we know from our anthroposophic literature as that of the higher hierarchies. That is our interior world. And between death and a new birth, we feel ourselves, really, as the whole world. If I say, in quotes, the whole world, this is relative but fully true nevertheless. Each of us feels himself to be the whole world. Within us, particularly at the most important moment of our spiritual existence between death and a new birth, we experience the world of spiritual beings within us and our consciousness originating in them. We have an awareness of our interior as constituted by the spirits of the higher world, whereas here on earth we have no awareness of our interior, of liver, lungs and so forth. This is the characteristic nature of spiritual experience, that basically everything is the reverse of physical experience here. But only through initiation science do we gradually come to realize how we should conceive of this reversal. Now there is an important process, or really I could say a group of processes which relate precisely to this inner community of ours with beings of the higher hierarchies. We could never come to ourselves if in the world of spirit we only perceived the world of higher hierarchies within us. We would know that certain beings live in us, but we could not gain any sense of ourselves in the spiritual world. Our experience between death and a new birth, therefore, is subject to a rhythmic alternation between looking inward and experiencing the world of spiritual beings, described in our anthroposophic literature, and then you can say the dulling of this awareness. In relation to our spiritual interior, this is similar to what happens in sleep, when we close our eyes and our ears no longer hear anything. Yet sleep has a different significance here on earth. When we turn our attention, if I can put it like that, from the world of spiritual beings within us, we start to perceive ourselves instead. This is, however, as if we were outside ourselves, but we know that we ourselves are there, outside us. In other words, in this world of spirit we perceive in alternation ourselves or the world of spiritual beings. You see, this recurring rhythmic process is one we can compare with two things in physical existence here on earth. Firstly, with our in-breath and out-breath, and then also with sleep life and waking life. Both of these are rhythmic processes, and both can be compared with what I have just described. But now it is important not just to have some abstract idea of processes like this occurring in the world of spirit, between death, and a new birth, in order, if you like, to satisfy your spiritual curiosity, but instead we should see that earthly life is a reflection of super-earthly life. So then we must ask this, what occurs here in earthly life that is like a capacity to remember this immersion of ourselves in the world of spiritual beings alternating rhythmically with an experience of our own self? We do not ordinarily have this capacity. It is one that beings of the higher hierarchies would have. What occurs here in physical life on earth that resembles such a memory? If we did not have this kind of experience between death and a new birth, by means of which we can gaze into ourselves to perceive the world of spirit, there would be no morality here on earth. What we retain from this experience of beings in the world of spirit when we pass through the embryo stage and enter earthly life at birth is an inclination for moral life. Our inclination for it will be all the stronger the more our experience of this community with spirits of the higher world has been one of bright clarity between death and a new birth. Someone who has the right spiritual insight into such things knows that people who are immoral here on earth are so because their experience was too dull when they looked into this spiritual existence. But it is also true that if between death and a new birth we could only experience what makes us one with beings of the higher world and never came to ourselves in the world of spirit, it would be quite impossible for us ever to become free, develop an awareness of our freedom, a sense of who we are, of our individuality, which basically is identical with our sense of freedom. The morality and freedom we develop here on earth are memories of this rhythm we experience in worlds of spirit between death and a new birth. By studying the soul we can see even more accurately what remains within us as echo of these experiences, of becoming one with spiritual beings, alternating with spiritual self-awareness. The echo in our soul of being one with spiritual beings is the capacity to love. This ability to love is more closely connected with moral life than people think. You see, without it there would be no moral life on earth. All moral action arises from the insight with which we meet another soul, arises from efforts we make to ensure our actions accord with our insights into another soul. Our capacity to behave selflessly toward others means that we can become moral in love. and This is largely an echo of our community with spiritual beings in the world between death and a new birth. And what remains from what I would appropriately call our experience of loneliness, the lonely experience of our self in the world of spirit. Actually, in a sense, we feel lonely when we breathe out. Breathing in is like an experience of spiritual beings, while breathing out is like an experience of the self. Our sense of loneliness, the echo of this sense of loneliness, is on earth our capacity to remember. We would have no power of memory if this were not an echo of the sense of loneliness I have described. We are human, really, in the world of spirit, by virtue of the fact that we, to say, withdraw is not strictly right, can liberate ourselves from what exists in us in the form of higher spirits. This makes us human beings, autonomous human beings in the spiritual world. And here on earth we become independent human beings because we can remember our experiences. Imagine what kind of autonomy you would have if you could live only in the present moment in thought. The thoughts you remember compose your very capacity to have an inner life, make you an individual on earth and this ability to remember is indeed the echo of that experience of loneliness in the world of spirit that I have described. Why do we actually descend into the physical world here from worlds of spirit? From what I described to you here last time, you can see that the powers that keep us in community with the higher spiritual beings gradually grow weaker. Here in physical life, We grow old because the powers that keep us one with the physical earth grow weaker. In the spiritual world, the powers that keep us one with spiritual beings likewise grow weaker. In particular, the powers weaken that enable us to grasp ourselves within beings of spirit and to be autonomous human beings. In the spiritual world, a fairly long time before we descend to earth, we first lose our capacity to live as one with beings of spirit. I described this last time I was here. Together with spiritual beings we form the spirit germ of our physical body, sending this down first. Then we take the ether body and follow after. First we lose the capacity. It fades to live in community with spirit beings in the world of spirit and we sense ourselves approaching ever closer to the earth by virtue of moon powers, we feel ourselves to be a self, but we feel our ability to grasp ourselves, sustain ourselves within the realm of spirit, to be diminishing, waning. Increasingly we feel as if we were growing faint and weak in the world of spirit. This induces us to feel we must support this feeling of self, which we can no longer sustain within us, by investing it in something external, in our body, to underpin it with a body. One can put it like this. We slowly forget how to fly and have to learn to walk. That's putting it metaphorically, but the metaphor is in turn a truth, a reality. And so we live our way into our body, The sense of loneliness is sustained by the body and becomes the faculty of memory, while our feeling of community is something we first have to regain here on earth. The whole significance of what is regained here becomes apparent if we study the state of sleep by spiritual scientific means. I described the state of sleep from a certain angle when I was here last, but now I wish to add to this picture some other processes. I realize that these things can easily be misunderstood. It repeatedly happens that people wonder why one description I give of, say, our experience during sleep, is different from another that I present. My dear friends, if I were to tell you on one occasion what a privy councillor does in his chambers, and on another what he experiences at home with his family, these things would not be contradictory. They interrelate. And in the same way things are interrelated in my accounts of sleep life. Between falling asleep and waking up again, we experience a kind of reverse repetition of what we did during the day. Sleep may be brief too, then these things are compressed or telescoped. It is not just that we look back on the day's experiences between falling asleep and waking up unconsciously, of course, but that when the soul really becomes clairvoyant during sleep, or if it recalls clairvoyantly what it experienced then, it becomes apparent that we really do experience in reverse order everything we did during the day. The last event we experienced before falling asleep figures first. In this way our whole sleep has a remarkably balancing effect. I can only tell you things as I find them to be in my spiritual scientific research. If you sleep for a quarter of an hour, the beginning of your sleep already knows roughly when it will end. And in this quarter hour you remember in reverse what you have done since you last woke up. However extraordinary this seems, everything is properly distributed through the available period of sleep. And this reverse experience lies somewhere between full reality and appearance. It's like this. If you have a memory picture of something you experienced in life twenty years ago, your healthy powers of reason tell you that you are not experiencing this now. It is a memory picture of a past experience. And someone with clairvoyant perception of what the soul experiences in reverse during sleep will not relate it to the present moment, but to the future, after death. The memory of an event experienced twenty years ago recalls the past, and in the same way someone who studies sleep clairvoyantly sees that it is a prefiguring of what will be experienced after death, and that, in other words, we will have to recapitulate in reverse all the deeds we did on earth, re-enacting and recapitulating them. This picture, during sleep, is therefore half reality and half appearance, for it relates to the future. For ordinary awareness, therefore, it is an unconscious passage through what we must undergo in the soul world, as I called it in my book Theosophy. And the states of intuition and inspiration, as I describe them in Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, can observe sleep and thereby perceive what we must undergo in the first after-death phase. These are not things I have randomly invented, but ones that can be observed once the capacity to do so has been acquired. Between falling asleep and waking up again, therefore, we recapitulate without our body what we did with our body while awake. Now, Though we arrive at an extremely stable idea. Imagine that excuse me, let me read that again, now though we arrive at an extremely subtle idea. Imagine that we must re experience our deeds from without through our capital I and astral body. The capacity to do this is one we acquire increasingly as we become better able to love. That is the secret of life as far as love is concerned. If a person is really able to go out of himself in love, in a sense loving his neighbor as himself, he learns what he needs in sleep in order to fully re-experience in reverse what he must experience, but without torment. For in this condition he must be completely outside himself. If a person is unloving, this gives rise to a tension when he must re-experience his unloving deeds outside himself. It constricts and confines him. Unloving people, if I can express this in an image, sleep in a tight-chested way. While we sleep, what we implant in ourselves through love in our life becomes very fruitful for us, and, as will be apparent from what I have said today, what develops during sleep endows us with what passes beyond the gate of death and continues to live there in the world of spirit. In our life between death and a new birth, our community with beings of spirit in higher worlds gradually wanes. But then we regain it germinally during our life on earth through love. You see, love reveals its meaning when a person is outside his physical and ether body with his eye and astral body in sleep. Between falling asleep and waking up, A person's human nature widens and broadens if he is loving, preparing itself well for what is to happen with him after death. His being grows narrow and constricted, on the other hand, if he is unloving and is ill-prepared for what is to happen with him after death. The germ of what occurs after we die lies primarily in loving thoughts and actions. During life on earth, Between birth and death, memory is something extremely fleeting, just pictures in our mind. Consider for a moment how little of our experience remains in our memory pictures. If you think of the deep pain you may perhaps have experienced at the death of a loved one, and recall vividly how you actually felt at the time, then picture what remains of this as inner experience, When you think back to it ten years later, you will find that it has grown pale, almost abstract. That is the nature of memory. Things grow pale and abstract compared to the fresh immediacy of actual experience. Why is our memory weak and shadowy? It is because it is, in fact, the shadow of our experience of ourselves between death and a new birth. This experience contains our capacity for memory and so really gives us our existence. What gives us flesh and blood here on earth endows us with the capacity for memory between death and a new birth. There, memory is strong, fresh and vivid, if I can use such expressions for spiritual reality. Then it employs the flesh and grows weak. And when we die, in a few days, as I have often described in my books, the last remains of memory are still present in the etheric body. When we pass through the gate of death, we look back upon the whole of our past life, and then this memory fades. But from this memory emerges what our strength of love on earth has given us as strength for life after death. And thus the strength of our memory is the inheritance we bring with us, from our pre-earthly life, and the strength of love is the germinal power for what we have after death. In other words, earthly life and experience relate to the world of spirit. But you remember that I compared what we experience in community with higher beings in the world of spirit, and its alternation with an experience of the self there, with breathing, with in-breath and out-breath, In turn, we can see our breathing process and all that is connected with it, processes of singing and speech, as a picture or reflection of this breathing in the world of spirit. You see, our life in the world of spirit, between death and a new birth, occurs in the following way. Insight into our own interior and oneness with the beings of the higher hierarchies. Then a view from our own interior and oneness with the self. This occurs like in-breathing and out-breathing, except that there we breathe ourselves in and breathe ourselves out, and this breathing is a spiritual process. Here on earth this breathing process becomes memory and love, as I have described. And in fact memory and love also work together here as a kind of breathing in physical life, If you can study this physical life properly with soul vision, you can actually discern the interplay of memory and love, even physiologically, in an important manifestation of breathing, in speech and singing. One of the most important aspects of the young child up to the change of teeth is the way the power of memory gradually develops. Initially, this is very elementary. The child has a certain ability to remember, but this only acquires autonomy toward the time of second dentition. It is enormously interesting to observe how the power of memory develops and emerges in the first period of childhood, and is really only fully developed when the child is ready for school. Only then can we draw on the child's remembering capacity. If we draw too much on his memory at an earlier stage... We will make a person too rigid and inwardly sclerotic later in life. Up to the change of teeth, it is important that the child receive the right immediate impressions from his surroundings. We can only start building on his memory between the change of teeth and puberty. Nowadays, physiologists are not yet able to describe these processes accurately. Spiritual science can do so and physiology will no doubt catch up at some point, since these things can be observed through accurate study of human nature. When we speak a sound or sing a tone, we can say that the head is involved initially. But what participates in this in the head is the same capacity that gives us memory as an inner faculty. Here, in a sense, it shoots into the speech sound or tone. This comes from above. It is easy to realize that no one can speak without some memory ability. If we always forgot what lies in the speech sound or tone, we would never be able to speak or sing. Tones and speech sounds are, on the one hand, embodied memory. On the other hand, love plays a part too, also physiologically, in what becomes speech and singing, in the breathing process. And a clear sign of this is that in the second phase of life when love comes to physiological expression the full inner wealth of tone arises in the male sex. It arises from below. And here you have the two elements together from above what underlies memory physiologically and from below what underlies love physiologically. These form speech sounds and sung tones in reciprocal interplay. In a sense, this, too, is a breathing process that lasts throughout life. In the same way that we breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide, so the power of memory combines in us with the power of love, and these encounter each other in speech and song. So we can say that speaking and singing involve a mutual interpenetration in us of the power of memory with the power of love. This is extremely significant for fathoming the real secret of tone and speech sound. There really is some truth, therefore, in the view of ancient cultures that language expresses the sum of universal powers and thoughts, as the Logos, and that this is the supersensible aspect of what comes to physical expression in speech. We not only breathe higher beings in and out between death and a new birth, but in a sense we speak, although this speech is at the same time singing, in this mutual interplay between oneness with spiritual beings of the higher world and coming back to ourselves. We speak with the beings of the higher hierarchies. This is a spiritual speaking. In the condition of becoming one with beings in the world of spirit, we look upon them, albeit within ourselves. When we release ourselves from them again and return to ourselves, we have an after-echo of this, and there we are ourselves. There they impress their own being into us, telling us what they are, and there the Logos lives in us. The reverse is true when we come to ourselves on earth, Here we express our own being when we speak and sing, express our intrinsic human nature in song and speech. We express our whole being in breathing processes, whereas between death and a new birth, we receive the whole nature of the world in the Logos as we withdraw from community with spirit beings. Now, as we make the transition from the world of spirit to the physical world, At the same time, in a sense, we pass through a great oblivion, through forgetfulness. Who still perceives in the shadowy power of memory in ordinary consciousness an echo of what we really were as a self in the world of spirit? And who still recognizes in speech, in the aspect of it originating in memory, the after-resonance of the self? Who, with ordinary consciousness, recognizes in our shaping of language in singing and speech, in the development of language's formative power, the echo of beings of the higher hierarchies. And yet it is true, isn't it, that if we know how to listen to speech without focusing on its utilitarian aspect, if we can hearken to what tones intrinsically express in their very nature, especially if we have an artistic sensibility, we can have an inkling that speech and singing reveal more to us than is encompassed in ordinary awareness. And why, in fact, do we transform ordinary language with its utility as means of earthly communication by ridding it of this utility in song and using it instead to express our own being in the heightened speech of poetry or in singing? Why do we transform it in this way? What are we actually doing here? We gain the right notion of this if we acknowledge that we were in the world of spirit before we descended to this earth and lived there as I have described. Then the great forgetting occurred. In what your mouth speaks, in what your soul remembers and how your soul loves, you do not perceive the echo of what you were in the world of spirit. But in art, in a sense, we take a step back from life, and a few steps nearer to what we were in pre-birth life and what we will be in life after death. And if we can recognize that memory, on the one hand, is the echo of what we had in pre-earthly life, and loving thoughts and deeds are the germ of what we will have after death, If we can bring to mind in us the past and future of human existence through spirit knowledge, then in art we can call into the present moment, as far as this is possible for us in our physical state, what connects us with the spirit. You see, art acquires its distinctive luminosity by transposing us, albeit naively, into the immediate presence of the world of spirit. Someone who can look into the heart of human life will see that human beings usually only remember things they have done in their earthly life so far. But the strength with which we recall these earthly experiences is only the diluted strength of our actual self-experience in pre-earthly life, our existence there. And the universal human love we can develop here, is the diluted germinal power of what will come to full flowering after death. Here we have past and future. And just as in singing, for example, and in the heightened speech of poetry, a connection must really exist between what a human being is, that is, memory, with the way in which he can give himself to the world, as love, so in all art we experience in the present moment a harmony between ourself and the outer world. And unless we are capable of bringing to the surface what we are, what life has made of us, and what basically is the content of our memory, in one respect we cannot be artists. But nor can we be artists either if we seek to be extreme egotists. Only someone who in a sense seeks to flow out into the world, to become one with others, who demonstrates love, can unite this loving openness with his own inner being. Here altruism and egotism flow into one. They do so most inwardly, of course, in the musical arts, but also in the pictorial arts. And if we deepen our powers of perception sufficiently to discover how our past and future are connected with the supersensible world, At the same time, we can see that we have a present inkling of this connection in both the creation and enjoyment of art. Art never really comes into its own if it does not involve some kind of resonance with religiosity. This does not mean it has to be over-pious, since humorous art can also touch on a religious quality. But we can see this clearly from the way art has developed. It was originally intrinsic to religious life, integrated into rites and religious worship in the ancient days of humanity. The images of the gods that people made gave rise to sculpture. Goethe refers to the Samothrace Mysteries in Part 2 of *Title Faust, where he speaks of the Kabiri. At my studio in Darnach, I tried to depict these Kabiri. What emerged was very interesting. I simply set myself the task of "'discovering through direct vision "'what the Kabiri and the Samothrace mysteries "'must have looked like. "'And what I got were three jugs, "'though they were artistically sculpted ones. "'I was astonished myself to begin with, "'although Goethe also speaks of jugs. "'The whole thing only became comprehensible to me "'when I discovered that these jugs stood upon an altar "'and were used to hold something like incense. "'The rites were sung.' And from the power of these words, which in ancient times still possessed a quite different resonance-awakening power from today, the incense smoke formed into an image of the God who was invoked. Thus, in the midst of religious worship, you have this resonating song which comes to immediate expression in the forms of the smoke. Humanity really did draw art from religious life and schiller is right when he says quote, "only through the dawn red light of beauty do you enter the land of knowledge" close quote. which is usually printed in books as "only through the morning door of beauty do you enter the land of knowledge" close quote. translator's note footnote the difference involves only the reversal of three letters in german close quote or end of footnote If an artist makes a mistake when writing, posterity naturally perpetuates the error. Of course, he meant, quote, only through the dawn-red light of beauty do you enter the land of knowledge, close quote. In other words, all knowledge arises from art. Fundamentally, there is no knowledge that does not have an intimate affinity with art. Only knowledge that relates to externalities, to utility, seems to have no connection with art. But such knowledge can only encompass, say, what a paint manufacturer knows of painting. As soon as one goes beyond mere paint-making in chemistry or physics, I'm speaking metaphorically, but you understand what I mean, science becomes artistic too. And when the spirituality of artistic endeavor is properly understood, then it gradually becomes religious. Art, religion and science were once one and we should still sense their common origins. We can only do so, however, if humanity's civilization, humanity's evolution, returns to the spirit again. And when we give serious attention to the relationships that exist between human life here in physical earth existence, and in the world of spirit, we need to make this our certain knowledge from a range of different perspectives. I have addressed one of these perspectives today, to show you how we are connected with the spiritual world i hope that we can continue these observations in the not too distant future the end of lecture 14